How's that? Good evening. What happened? You guys? Good evening. Now, the first time I gave you the benefit that you didn't hear me. The second time, I know you heard me. Every child of God, or every person who would ostensibly become a child of God, needs to understand the concept of redemption. The word redemption has to do with liberating someone or something from oppression, deterioration, or loss. Sometimes the word redemption is used with rescuing someone from the clutches of another. And you might sometimes hear the word ransom being used in this regard. Every child of God and everyone who would be a child of God needs to understand this concept of redemption. I say that to you because the entire grand narrative of the Bible has to do with the redemption of the human family. I mean, the whole Bible is about the idea of God rescuing human beings, liberating human beings from the eternal consequences of their sin. When you open your Bible to the book of Genesis and you read about the creation, you quickly read about Adam and Eve and how they forfeited their lives because of sin. And just as quickly as you read that, you read that Jesus Christ started heading for the cross at Calvary, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And so everything you read in the Old Testament, all of that is pointing to the fact that Jesus was making his way to a dusty hill called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Everything you read about in the Old Testament is pointing to the cross and the redemption that Jesus secured for the souls of Adam and Eve and everybody who came after them up to and including us. When you get to the New Testament, of course, what you're reading is that Jesus has arrived. What you're reading is that Jesus is more immediately going to the cross. You read Jesus saying, my time has come. It's time for him to pay the price for you and for me. And so everything that has happened, everything that's happened in the world since that time, finds its meaning ultimately in events that took place 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world at a place called Calvary. Every Christian, everybody who would be a Christian, needs to understand this concept of redemption. When I read in the New Testament, one of the things that's interesting to me, though, is that Jesus obviously understood what he was doing and why. Jesus, it was always poignant in his mind the significance of what was about to take place. But the people who were there with him, even his apostles, the people who were there with him, those who were pursuing his life, people who were there with him, yea, the ones who took his life, did not understand the significance of what was happening in the moment. No, they didn't. You and I, 2,000 years later, have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. We know by inspiration the significance of what occurred, but but when you take a look at the contemporaneous insights of the people who were there when it happened, one of the remarkable things to me is they did not appreciate what was taking place. But you know what? When you look at what they said, when you see what they did, I, I, I'm not just talking about Jesus. I mean, the people who were around Jesus, when you look at what they said, when you see what they did, here's what I think is interesting. 
2,000 years ago, as these events were unfolding, the people were saying exactly what we see to be true today. That is that Jesus died for the sin of the whole world when it was taking place. Here's what I want to do for a few moments tonight. I want to look at a few of these statements. And so what we'll do is sort of drop into the scripture in a few places and just see what people had to say about the significance of Jesus' death as these events were unfolding. And so first, I invite you to go with me to John chapter 11. If you look at John chapter 11, we're going to run into a statement here that was made by a man named Caiaphas. John chapter 11. Now, in John chapter 11, what's happening is that Jesus' popularity is increasing. It's becoming a problem for the Pharisees and the rulers of the day as his popularity increases. Guess what? Theirs decreases as his influence increases. Theirs decreases. And so they are concerned about their own influence and they are concerned about how the Romans might react to what is taking place. John chapter 11, beginning at verse number 49. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, says unto them, his fellow Jewish rulers, you know nothing at all, nor do you take account that it is expedient for you that one man should die, listen to it, for the people and that the whole nation perish not. This is by inspiration. Now this he said not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. Caiaphas. Listen, uh, if you'll turn to John 18, I just want to show you something here. In John 18, now we're on the eve of the trials that Jesus was going to endure. Of course, he was tried by the Jews. He has a preliminary hearing, so to speak, uh, with Annas. And then he goes to Caiaphas and Caiaphas is going to send him on to Pontius. But but listen to this in John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse number 14. Now, Caiaphas was he that gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, this is pertaining to Jesus' Jewish trial. What's happening? The man sort of makes an unwitting announcement, an unknowing announcement. He says, don't you guys see? Now, he's thinking as a carnal man. Don't you guys see that as a simple matter of expedience, it is better for us that one man lose his life than that we should lose our power. And worse yet, that if we upset the apple cart, so to speak, if we're not stable politically, the Romans will then come in and punish us severely. Don't you see that it is better for one man to die than that the nation as a whole should perish? He was uh, he was thinking as a purely political animal. You know what? But he reached the, the same conclusion that God reached in this regard. It was a matter of expedience that one man should die and listen to the words of Caiaphas and that the nation perish not. Jesus was uh, the ransom. For Israel, He was the ransom payment for the world. He was the rescue. He was the liberator. 
He took Israel's place in Caiaphas' mind. He took our place in Jesus' mind. And listen, again, by inspiration, John makes it clear that Caiaphas does not say this of himself. See, he's thinking as a purely carnal man, but because of his office, because he's the high priest, God uses him to say what he intends through this circumstance at Calvary. He doesn't intend that the nation of Israel should be spared only. He intends that all the nations should be spared by this singular event. This was a matter of freeing the whole world from the oppression that comes along with sin. In Caiaphas' mind, it was simple contrivance and connivance. In God's mind, it was a matter of compassion for you and for me. A council of convenience from Caiaphas gives us insight. You see, he didn't understand it, but he was saying what we now know. This was a matter of expedience for God to rescue and save us. Look at Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, I want to begin reading about verse number 18. You see, the case is that when Jesus was condemned by the Jews, the Jews did not have the political authorization to execute him. And so what they do is they take him from their council, the Sanhedrin council, their meeting, take him from there to the steps of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius is the governor there in Rome, and so he has the official authority to execute Jesus, and they want to enlist him, they want to enlist this pagan, this Gentile, this heathen, to do their dastardly work for them. And so they go to him and they say to him, listen, we would like you to kill this man. By our law, he's supposed to die. Now, Pilate, oh, he knows these Jews, and so he says, well, wait a minute, what has he done? And they say, listen, if he wasn't a troublemaker, we wouldn't have brought him. They don't want to be clear about the accusation. But but we get to the end of this. Pilate sees the kind of people that they are. He knows, the Bible says, that for envy they have delivered him up. And so he wanted to rescue Jesus. And he had a custom. At the Passover, he had a custom. He would release one person. One factually guilty person. He would free one person who deserved to die. Just as a matter of grace. Just as a matter of mercy. And so knowing that this was his custom, knowing that the Jews expected this anyway, he will say to the Jews, maybe we should release Jesus. Luke 23, beginning at verse number 18. Verse 17, now he must needs release unto them at the feast one prisoner, but they cried out all together saying, away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. Listen to this, one who for a certain insurrection made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. And Pilate spake again unto them desiring to release Jesus, but they shouted saying, crucify, crucify him. 
And he said unto them the third time, why, what evil has this man done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. I will punish him. I'll make him hurt a little bit. I'll go ahead and punish him, but I'd rather not kill him. I will release him. But they were urgent with loud voices asking that he might be crucified and their voices prevailed. And Pilate gave sentence that what they asked for should be done. And he released him that for insurrection and murder had been cast into prison whom they asked for. But Jesus, he delivered up to their will. This is a perfect illustration of ransom and redemption. Barabbas is a factually guilty man. Listen, he was a rebel. He had rebelled against the laws of man. He was a factually guilty person. He was a murderer. And so by God's law, he deserved to lose his own life. He had forfeited the privilege to live by taking the life of another in an inexcusable and unjustified way. Under Roman law, he was supposed to be executed. Under Roman law, he was supposed to be crucified. You see, the Romans reserved crucifixion for the lowest in their society. They reserved crucifixion for people like insurrectionists because they wanted to make a point. And you see, there's only two options here. Someone has to die. Now, it'll be Jesus, a factually innocent man, or it will be Barabbas, a guilty man who deserves to die. And the people plead clemency for a murderer. The cross that Jesus hung on was intended for Barabbas. Jesus died for the sin of the whole world. He died for me. And I don't know how you deal with that, but I'll tell you, listen, I have times early in the morning I'm by myself or I'm up in my office late at night. I have times where I have to wrestle with that. I don't know what you feel about it, but Jesus died for me. It was my fault. And I know that. But in a more immediate way. He died for Barabbas. That particular wooden torture rack was intended for this man. And he didn't have to hang on it because Jesus hung on it in his place. This is a perfect illustration of redemption and ransom. When I think about this, one of the things that kind of strikes me because the Bible doesn't tell us What became of Barabbas after this? I mean, he had been a rebel, right? He had been an outlaw. He he had been no good. He had been no good to his neighbors. He had been no good to God. But Jesus died for him. Jesus took his place on the cross at Calvary. What happened after that? The Bible doesn't tell me, you know, but I, you know, I'd like to think that he having this second chance at life, right? Having this this new life. Listen, having been born again in a respect, I'd like to think that the man lived a life that was worthy of having been redeemed. I just don't know that that's what happened. But here's the thing for you and me. 
It was more immediate for Barabbas. But you see, when Jesus hung on that cross at Calvary, he took my place. He took your place. We deserved to be there. And the only reason that we aren't there is because he's there in our place. He rescued me. He redeemed you. He ransomed us. What do you do with that? Yeah, maybe maybe Barabbas continued to live life as an outlaw. You know, maybe maybe he led some other insurrection against Rome. Maybe he was killed in his rebellion. Maybe he spent the rest of his life in prison. You know, if that's what he did, guess what? Then Jesus death didn't do anything for him. I mean, Jesus death was of no efficacy whatsoever if he lived the same life after that as he had lived before. But what if he had changed his life? What if he recognized that this just man had died for him and now it was his responsibility to live for the one who had taken his place? His entire life would have been different. How is your life different? You see, the crowd pled clemency for a robber, a bandit, a murderer. God sending Jesus to the cross pled clemency for you and for me. How is your life different now? The crowd didn't understand. They they didn't fully understand what they were asking. But it's a perfect illustration of redemption. Mark chapter 15. If you look at Mark chapter 15, Jesus is hanging on the cross now, right? He's been condemned by the Romans because the Jews had instigated that. He has taken Barabbas' place, and now he's hanging there on the cross. Listen to this, beginning at verse number 29. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you that destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross in like manner also, the chief priests mocking him among themselves. Listen, with the scribes, they said, uh, they said, they said he saved others himself. He cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reproached him. This really is an astonishing. Uh, this is an astonishing event here. We have a taunt of liberation from his enemies. Jesus is hanging on the cross dying. You know, to the extent that he was a guilty person, and he was not, right? I'm just saying for the sake of argument. To the extent that he was a guilty person, he was receiving the just desserts of his crimes, right? I mean, he's being tortured. He's dying the death. And as he is being tortured and dying the death, paying his debt to society, as it were, These are supposed to be God's people and rather than offer him a moment of comfort, they are jeering him in his darkest hour. He doesn't have a friend. He doesn't have a friend in the crowd. Just a few days before this, he had made triumphant entry into 
Jerusalem just a just a few days before this. Right. He comes in riding on a colt, as it were, as it had been prophesied. And the people were casting down branches and clearing the way for him. And they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. Listen, they were celebrating him and now they're jeering him. And I'm saying to you that even if he were a guilty man, how astonishing is it? that a godly person would behave in this manner in this moment. It's mind-boggling. Well, they weren't godly people. But they do make a key acknowledgement. They do make a key acknowledgement. You see what they say here? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross. Now, they intended this to be a sneer. They called themselves being sarcastic, but they are acknowledging that he called himself the Christ. They are acknowledging that he called himself the king of Israel. And that's the reason that they wanted him to die. And in this context now, they're going to make a request of him. Here's what you should do. If you are who you say you are, come down from the cross and save yourself. Now, listen, people who are incredulous, I mean to say people who don't want to believe, people who will not believe no matter what you say or what you show them, always make the most outlandish requests. You know what? If you will do this, then I will believe. No, you won't. No, you won't. All of the teaching that Jesus has done, all of the miracles that Jesus has performed, the way he has transformed people's lives in your midst. And you say one more miracle and I'll believe it. No, you won't. No, you won't, because you're incredulous. Some people will not believe because their hearts are just that hard. If he will come down, then we'll believe. Well, here's the thing that's amazing to me about that. We know that Jesus had the ability to come down. You see, his disciples were ready to fight to prevent him from going to the cross. And he says, listen, I can call down these legions of angels to stop this if I wanted to stop this. But I don't want to stop it because God doesn't want it to stop. He could have stopped this. But uh, if he had stopped it. If he had saved himself then he couldn't have saved us. You see, he was the ransom payment. He was our redemption. He is our liberator. He is our rescue. He couldn't save himself and save me too. It's an ironic invitation because Jesus died for the very people who were telling him to save himself instead of them. No, he wouldn't save himself because his intention was to save me. Look at Luke 23 again. In Luke 23, this time beginning about verse number 39, Jesus is there hanging on cross and we just see that while he's hanging there the masses have turned against him and and the scribes and the pharisees they're, they're sort of jeering him and none of that surprises us but but we've also seen that those who were hanging with him also sneered and jeered and cast aspersions in his teeth that's the way the bible sometimes describes this 
The Bible tells us, Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors in his death. Right. And that's what we see. Jesus, a factually innocent man, is hanging on one of three crosses on either side of him. The Bible says are these robbers and the term robber that's used here is the same term that's used for the man who fell among thieves. You remember that he's on the road, Jericho Road, and he falls among thieves. This is not just somebody who takes stealthily. This is someone who takes by force and imperils the natural lives of those who possess what he wants. This is a violent man, right? On either side of him are these kind of people, and the cross that he hung on was intended for another of these kind of people, Barabbas. But Jesus is, but Jesus is hanging there. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. And one of the malefactors, one of the evildoers that were hanged, railed on him, saying, Are not you the Christ? Save yourself. And he says, And us. You know, the others have said, Save yourself. But he's in the same position with Jesus. So he says, Well, save yourself and us too, right? But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? And listen to it. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he says to him, verily or truly, I say unto you today, you shall be with me in paradise. A request for rescue from this robber. As Jesus hung there, these two men who were dying with him, these two men, they both initially began by sort of joining with others and casting aspersions against Jesus. They, they joined with others in blaspheming against him. But, but somewhere along the line, one of these two men changes his talk. You know, and the Bible doesn't really explain to us why, but it's clear that he initially began by joining in with those who were jeering the Lord. And somewhere along the way, he changes his talk. Somewhere along the way, it becomes plain to him that he's going to die a natural death. Listen, and he knows that he has forfeited his natural life. Everything that is happening to him He knows that he deserves. He doesn't have any delusions about that. And he also knows in this moment, he has exactly one opportunity for rescue. He turns to Jesus and he says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. You remember John had come and announced that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And and Jesus had come along after he was baptized of John and he had preached and said, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he sent his apostles out and told them, listen, you need to preach to people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus had told his disciples, Mark 9 and 1, that this generation will not pass. Some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom come with power. He had been saying the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. And somewhere along the line, this man heard that. And he says to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. 
What is he talking about? I mean, he's hanging on the cross at Calvary. His natural life is over. This man is about to die. What is he talking about? Yeah, he's thinking about what comes after. I die on this cross. He's thinking about what's beyond the grave. And Jesus says to him, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. You know, it sometimes took people days to die on those crosses, you know, because people you, you would think that they died from losing blood or something like that. No, but they suffocated on the cross. That's how people actually died. The cause of death was suffocation because they would put a person on this cross. It was really a torture rack. They would put them on the cross in such a way that they could not breathe. And so in order for them to breathe, they'd have to sort of try to extend their bodies up. They put pressure on the nails in their hands and feet to lift their bodies up so they could expand their diaphragms. And after so much time, they would be too tired and they'd be in too much pain and they couldn't do that and they would just suffocate and die. And this sometimes took days. Well, Jesus didn't say you're not going to die. He didn't tell them that. He didn't say, listen, you're not going to suffer the just desserts of your ill deed. He didn't tell them that. But what he did tell them is uh, after this is over, after this is all done, You'll be with me in paradise. The Greek term that's translated paradise here is the same Greek term that is used to, pe- to translate the Garden of Eden in the Septuagint. You know, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that's the version, by the way. That's the translation that Jesus and the apostles uh, would have used. And, and so anyway, that term refers to the abode of the blessed. The Garden of Eden was where the blessed dwell. They dwelled in the presence of God there. And paradise, paradise, the abode of the blessed. Jesus, when he when he expired, naturally expired, he went to the abode of the blessed and was there with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the faithful of old. And he tells this man that he would be there with him as well. He made a request to uh, be rescued, not from this, not from this but in eternity. And Jesus granted it, right? He redeemed that man there on the cross. The last verse I want to look at is John 19. You know, this is, uh, I know this is familiar, and I appreciate that having been read for us. In John chapter 19, verse number 30, You know, Jesus is there hanging on the cross, and as he's hanging on the cross, he's making several statements. And so sometimes we mention the seven sayings on the cross and so forth. Well, this is the last one. Listen to this. Verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is a word of victory now. This is a word of victory from the Messiah. Listen, it has to do with redemption. Now, it may not be obvious to you, but let me tell you what's going on here. We have these three words in English, it is finished, but it's one Greek term, testelestai. This one word was used. It's been found, listen, we found this on artifacts and so forth. When the people would pay their, when they'd get a tax bill and they would pay their tax bill, when they paid it, it would be stamped testelestai. 
And that meant paid in full. You know, when you go somewhere and you pay a bill, they give you a receipt to prove that the bill has been paid. And every now and again, somebody wants to act like the bill wasn't paid. And you pull out the receipt and you say, here it is right here. It's been paid. Jesus. Last words. In his natural life. Paid in full. What was paid? The sin debt that Adam and Eve had incurred. That bill had been outstanding for a long time. It was paid in full. The debt that the Jews had incurred. You know, all this stuff in the Old Testament about the animal and the vegetable sacrifices and and them trying to, and some people will say, roll their sin forward or roll their sin back. Listen, it didn't take care of the bill. It was just kind of on credit. You know, it was an extension. It was a line of credit. We know that Jesus is coming, so we'll kick this thing down the road until Jesus comes. But at some point, the bill has to be paid. And Jesus says, I paid it. I paid it in full. He, uh, he redeemed Everyone who had ever been enslaved to sin, he paid the price to redeem everyone who had ever been enslaved to sin. I said to you that the whole Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is pointing to this event, Jesus dying on this cross at Calvary. Part of the reason I feel so confident in saying that is that Jesus' very last word on earth, natural life, paid in full. I don't know if you've ever had a debt that you couldn't pay. Some of you, like you've never experienced that, you don't know what that's like. I don't know if you've ever had a bill, and when you received it, you just said to yourself, there's no way I can pay it. But some of you have had that experience, you know, and if you have, then you know what that feeling is like when you have a debt that you can never repay and you have that hanging over your head. And then someone comes along, some good Samaritan, if you will, some kind soul comes along and just says. I'll pay that for him. I see this kind of stuff on the news sometimes. I don't really even watch the news, but this stuff comes to my attention sometimes. I, sometimes I'll see somebody famous and they'll sort of go in somewhere and pay like all the hospital bills for some, some hospital. They just pay all the bills. You know, sometimes people have cancer or something like that. They don't have, they don't have insurance, man, and they've got bills they could never imagine paying. And then somebody comes along and says, I pay that in full. I've seen circumstances here recently where, you know, children are going to school and they can't afford to to pay for their meals and stuff like that. And so they've got these big bills because they can't even afford to pay for the meal. And then and then somebody in that town just says, I'll pay all of the bills for everybody in that school. That feeling of liberation, that feeling of having a burden lifted. That's what Jesus did. And it's not like in the Old Testament, you know, where they had to keep sacrificing these animals and keep sacrificing these vegetables and doing this day after day and year after year. It's not like that. Jesus' sacrifice was made one time 
for all people, for all time. You know, when you pay it off, the slate is wiped clean. Jesus paid it off. He didn't pay on it. He paid it off. This was his word of victory. It's all done. My father dispatched me into the world for this purpose. And it's all done. It is. Uh, it's an inspiring conclusion. It really is. I sometimes will tell people if. Uh, you know, if Jesus had died. If he had died an innocent man unjustly. And that was the end of the story. Well, that'd be a tragedy, wouldn't it? I mean, listen, in my line of work, and some of you I know are at least aware of this, you know, every now and again, we actually do kill the wrong person. You know, we punish somebody who didn't commit the crime and we execute them. And then we find out later that we killed the wrong person. Hey, listen, that's a tragedy. Sometimes we put a person in prison for 20 years, 30 years, and then we figure out we got the wrong person and we let them out. And we give them a couple of dollars. Listen, you can't pay for that. That is a tragedy. An innocent person being punished like that. If Jesus, an innocent man, had died for my crime and that was the end of the story. Well, that'd be a tragedy. But it's not the end. Jesus said, lay my life down. I have the power to take my life up again. And so he did on the third day. The Bible says it was impossible that death should hold him. Listen, he went into the grave on my behalf. He spent three days in the belly of the earth and he took his life up again. And that shows me that I that I, too, can have a new life just as he was raised. He redeemed me. And was resurrected himself to show me that like Barabbas, when I get this second opportunity, I can go on to live a new life in Christ. It's not a sad tale. It's not a tragic story. It is a victory achieved on my behalf by the Son of God and on yours. Hey, listen. Every Christian and every person who would be a Christian. You need to understand this idea of redemption. There's certain theological concepts that, listen, you need to wrestle with and wrap your mind with, wrap your mind around because the entire Bible is built around explaining these concepts and redemption is one of them. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the lamb? Have you been? Jesus died for you. Have you accepted his payment on your behalf? Because uh, you're a factually guilty person. You are. And I don't know you. Listen, I don't know most of your names. Just be honest with you. It's not about that. I don't know what your particular sin is. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I know this. You're a factually guilty person. You have rebelled against God. You have rebelled against man. And you are going to suffer the just deserts of your crimes in this life. There's going to be consequences. And some of us will get through this life without paying all of the consequences. But in the next life. Yeah, there's a God in heaven and he just doesn't miss anything. If you would like to be rescued from that, see, if you'd like to be rescued from eternal loss, 
You have to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made on your behalf. You come to Christ in faith, believing that he is the son of God who died for you on Calvary's cross. You come to Christ with a penitent heart, understanding that you deserve to be condemned, understanding that if God were to cast you out of his presence and into hell, the fire and darkness of the sun, you deserve that. You come understanding that that's what you've earned. And you change your mind. You change your mind about the way you've been living. You come to God with a penitent heart. You come to him through baptism. You know, if, uh, if, you have a, if you have a dirty item of clothing, if you want it to be clean, you have to wash it, right? If you have a dirty item of clothing, you have to wash it in order for it to be clean. You don't just say, well, listen, I, I changed my mind about it being dirty and now it's clean. It doesn't work that way. You have to wash it. Well, the same is true about your soul. If you have sullied your soul in sin and you would like it to be clean, it has to be washed. And in baptism, God washes your sin away. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. God washes your sin away. You come to Christ in faith with a penitent heart through baptism. And the price that Jesus paid at Calvary's cross, listen, it will be your ransom, your redemption. And then you go on to live a new life, a new life in Jesus Christ. I don't know what you make of this. I don't. But I'll tell you something. If you're trying to live the Christian life, you can never get too far away from this idea that Jesus rescued you. It means everything. If we can help you, we would love to do that. We invite you to come and let us know if you stand in need of prayer. You know that, listen, your life hasn't been what it be, and you'd like to make it right. Why don't you let us know that? We would love to pray with you. We would love to help you. You just have to let us know that that's what you need. If you've never been baptized for the remission of your sin, then listen, your soul is still unclean and there's no reason for it to remain unclean because God will wash your sins away in baptism. If you've not been baptized, why don't you be baptized tonight and begin this new life in Christ? We just wouldn't want to do anything more than we would want to help you right now. If we can, would you let us know how we can as we stand and sing the song of invitation? There's a